Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 136. Last week we saw where Jesus was still in the hands of Pilate. He had just been returned by Herod to Pilate. And we saw in the text where there was an annual tradition within this part of the calendar where they would release a prisoner under Roman rule and they had someone interestingly whose Hebrew name was Yeshua Bar Rabbis Bar Abba Bar Abba yeah more commonly called Barabbas there um, you go and so you have this stand in Yeshua who actually was uh, guilty of committing crimes the text in Mark says that he had committed murder and then you have the true man the true Yeshua who was innocent of all of these ridiculous claims that these people were bringing in front of him and Pilate asks the crowd like who do you want me to release and they said Barabbas and just true injustice present there And so once that gets the verdict on who's getting released gets decreed that they send Jesus to get flogged or scourged, which we we talked about the how intense of a experience that would have be would have been. It would have potentially left Jesus at the brink of death already, um, even before the crucifixion, and then they. This cohort of Roman battalion um, dresses Jesus in a robe and puts the the crown of thorns on him, and they're all kneeling down in front of him, saying, "Hail the King of Jews!" Which you got imagery there that that's what all of you know Israel and the nation should be doing for that's this right. king, but they're doing it in jest. Yeah, and then. Pilate brings Jesus back out to the crowds dressed in this garb, and he said, Behold the man. And we spent some time talking about how it's almost indirectly prophetic on Pilate's part to say that this is the true human. This is what humanity is supposed to look like, and they are bringing him out to uh, send him to his death. Just such heavy heavy stuff going on right now in the in the text oh yeah this is rough climax of the story but yeah it's it's rough yeah so the thing is you know the crowd's all worked up you know they're they're all yelling crucify him crucify him whatever pilots trying to get out of it trying to put it on them uh even told them to go crucify him or take care of it themselves what i remember how exactly how he says it but we're picking up we're picking up John chapter 19, verse 7 through 11. And, well, let's just see how the, how the Jews, the crowd, respond. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, 
He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So again, you see that meek man here who's uh, like close to death and he's still, when he does speak, it's just clear. It's just good. I love this. Mm -hmm. So, so the Jews, I say it this way, they kind of sidestep Pilate's offer to kill him themselves. They, and again, I think it's because they just don't want to be held responsible for the crowds and all that kind of stuff. They can point the finger, the Romans killed him. So anyway, now they bring out the big buns. Oh my God, I look so fat. The big guns. <laughs> <laughs> Big old buns. Does this make me look fat? <laughs> they say that he must die because he claims to be the son of God. Makes himself the son of God. Now, I'm emphasizing the the. I don't know if they were or not, but whatever. We'll go with it. Jews and Romans, let's just say, they didn't see things exactly the same way, but... They both would have understood Son of God to be something like God's chosen king, a king above all other kings. So, so for Pilate, in his mind, this would have been Caesar, and, and, and this really gets Pilate's attention. Remember, he'd already heard a little something from his wife, and so now he's even more afraid. Now, Pilate he would have had an understanding of things like maybe a demigod or or you might even talk about a human with a divine spark or little things of this nature. And again, that was how he would have viewed Caesar. And so this whole little little deal here would have represented real danger. And, and that would have been danger to him, danger to the empire, etc. I mean, all of it. And uh, with the caveat, if it were true. Now, at this point, Pilate was probably more afraid because of his own religious myths than even what his wife had told him earlier. But I think we can probably count on both things now working on him and bothering him. So he enters his headquarters, and it doesn't say it in the text. We have to infer that Jesus was brought back in with him. But he tries to get to the bottom of this. And he asks this question, where are you from? Which I think in the context, we have to imagine what Pilate's actually saying is, are you from the gods? That's probably the way he would have understood the question. But Jesus will not speak. And Pilate, he can't believe this guy. Why won't you say something? I mean, don't you get it? Your life is in my hands. I have the authority to kill you or to let you go. 
So Jesus then finally does speak. And he lets Pilate in on the truth of this whole situation. Pilate, you only have authority over me because God wants it that way. God gave it to you. You, you probably imagine that your authority is complete, at least right here in this moment, in this circumstance. But it's not. It's only a vapor. And this, I'm guessing, it had to really bother Pilate. In this whole situation, Jesus had, he'd gotten under his skin. It's, it's like Pilate knows there's something off about this whole thing, but he doesn't really get it. Not the way, in theory, we do, getting a chance to look back, see the scriptures, the big story, all that kind of stuff. Jesus, and I'm again, I'm going to call this an act of mercy on Jesus's part, uh, mercy toward Pilate. Jesus lets him know that Pilate is not going to be the one who receives the harshest punishment for everything that's about to go down. Those who delivered Jesus over are guilty of the greater sin. So I've made that point. It's an important point. But now I want to jump quickly to kind of like a side note. Please notice. And I'm sure, Samuel, have you heard this? Well, all sin is the same. If you've (laughs) sinned once, you, I mean, you know, right? Have you heard that? I have. Now, there's an aspect to which that's kind of true in like when Paul talks about it. If you've broken one element of the law, you've broken the entire law. So so there's that side of it that's kind of true. But notice there is such a thing as one sin being greater than another. To murder someone is worse than not keeping the Sabbath or I, I don't know, pick a thing. There's some sins are greater than others, and people want to talk their way out of that, but they're wrong to do so. Anyway, back to the the original point. Who is it that's going to bear the greatest part of the punishment for what's happening right here? Sammy, you want to take a guess? I mean, it's Jesus is saying that it's not Pilate that's going to get the harsher punishment or judgment. It's going to be that these Jewish people who are contending for him to die. Yeah. And and we would call it the Jewish leaders, the ones who actually made this all happen. But we also have to remember that this entire generation bears some responsibility because they didn't repent. They've, in effect, rejected the Messiah, rejected the kingdom, all that kind of thing. And so they're all going to be bearing the brunt of this. And we can see if we just look at what happens historically right after this, well, we, we see the Sadducees literally just cease to exist. It doesn't take very long. The Sadducees just disappear from history. We see the destruction of the temple. That was a really big deal. There's 2,000 years of exile. We're still in it, right? That's a big deal. And I don't know if this is like a bad consequence, but from the, the Jewish perspective in this moment, in this time, the Gentiles being grafted in by faith while the Jews are sort of, what's Paul called that, that partial hardening, Mm -hmm. the fact that the kingdom is postponed until later, that the Jews, uh, Israel, they experience the scorn of the nations or they're scorned by the nations, whatever. You put all this together, they got it pretty rough. 
But again, if you took this too far and you said that God rejected the Jews or God replaced the Jews or anything like that, you have misread the story. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening here. But anyway, yeah. there's all of that bit, Samuel. What do you got in there? Uh, just one thing on this last bit and then something previous in the section. Uh, yeah, the, I, it's the same thing that you said, but there can be severity within exile for God's people and that still not mean rejection or exactly. abandonment. Exactly. So in the same way that if you have a child as a parent who is being severely disobedient, you need some kind of discipline in that child's life in order for there to be potential for growth, uh, change, but that like a good parent would not abandon or reject that child. Exactly. Uh, so it's like being keep... in a timeout. Yeah. <laughs> right? Kind of a yeah. severe one, but hey, that's the that's the idea. And then the the second thing I wanted to bring up, in no way am I trying to defend Pilate because we we've already made it clear that he was a bad guy, but yep. I don't know. And we don't know the intentions of his heart, what was going on internally, but he is wrestling with this situation. I mean, I'm just thinking back on how mobile Jesus has been since being handed over from Caiaphas to Pilate. So Pilate got him. He brought him out before the public. He After that, he brought him in privately to talk about him and then was asking him the whole bit about, are you actually a king? Right, and Jesus saying his kingdom's not of this world, and then Pilate brings them back out to the public again, and then he sends them to Herod. Herod does hit his bit with them. Herod sends them back to Pilate. Pilate has another bit out in the public with Jesus, <laughs> right. and then he brings them in privately again to speak to him. So, I mean, this is not a cut and dry situation for Pilate in terms of, you know, the man's guilty, like just let's be done with this and you know send him to his death like what uh does this have concerning me like i don't know he's he's in a pickle right now because there's something more powerful going on behind the scenes that i think maybe he's recognizing right yeah yeah now this is important i i am totally agreeing with your point but i also want to just re uh, iterate or or make sure people understand this again. Remember how I said I had a little trouble interweaving John into the narrative of the Gospels because it feels like they have parts of it that line up and things that happen after, but other parts of it look like they're repeats or whatever. So everything that you laid out there, you know, the in and the out and the Herod and the back and the in and the out and all that stuff. Okay, it's possible that it interweaved a little better than that and maybe it didn't happen quite so many times. But that doesn't change your point at all. I just want to make sure people know, gotcha. hey, this was, this was a difficulty in trying to lay it out, you know, mm -hmm. in uh, all the Gospels in sequence. But yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a great point. Yeah, Pilate. Well, and you know what? It's going to continue. Let's read it because it, it, this is the end of, of what we'll see about Pilate. So let's, let's do this. John chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. Actually, I'm going to cut the very end of 16 off. You'll see. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, 
If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now, there's some weird stuff in here, but (laughs) shocking and amazing as well. So here we are. Remember, we're in John's gospel. Pilate seems just a little extra motivated to release Jesus. He really did not want to go through with this. But the Jews in the crowd, well, they turned it up to 11. He calls himself a king, which is in direct opposition to Caesar. And so they're telling Pilate, look, if you let this man go, you, Pilate, are Caesar's enemy. It really left Pilate with no choice. He was stuck. If he let him go, word would get back to Caesar, and then he's going to be in trouble. Seriously, there's a guy who's who's opposing my throne, and you just let him go, right? He would have been doomed. And even if this Jesus guy is just a loon, some some loony dude, what? It doesn't matter. Pilate would have been in trouble. So, in fact, this turns out to be an outright threat against Pilate. Crucify him or else. Now, interestingly, John has us at noon at this point in the story. There's going to be some contrary info coming up from Mark. But remember, John is the one who also has us on now Passover Eve. So, Pilate does what he must do, at least in his eyes. He sits on that judgment seat. Remember, we talked about that. The the Jews were just waiting. Will you please do the final judgment bit? This is the place from where his official decrees are made. And finally, he's going to make the judgment and present Jesus. And he takes one last dig at them. Behold your king, which is kind of funny because remember what he said earlier. You brought it up, Samuel. Behold the man, and now he's saying, behold your king. He is, he's stepping up the mockery. Who's he mocking, Samuel? I mean, is he mocking the people? Yeah, the Jews, the crowd. Yeah, he's not mocking Jesus anymore. He's going after them. And since they have been mm, slyly questioning Pilate's loyalty, threateningly questioning Pilate's loyalty to Caesar, He decides, and this is so classic, Pilate decides to test their loyalty as well. And he presents Jesus as their king, and they reject him. 
they cry out, crucify him. So Pilate, he presses even harder. Oh, you want me to crucify your king? And the chief priests say something, Samuel, I mean, just imagine this situation. They say something unimaginable. We have no king but Caesar. Now, I get it that maybe they didn't want this Jesus character to be their king, right? In the story, you could see that. But they said, we have no king but Caesar. Where's God in all of this in their mind? See, I guess it's debatable, but I would consider what they just said right here. Out of everything that's happened, I would consider that to be blasphemy. They just put Caesar not equal to God, but above him. I just think that's crazy. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Okay, maybe. But I just think this is incredible. At the end of a story, when they're killing this guy because of blasphemy, they end up being the true and only blasphemers. It's just, it's amazing to me. But anyway, Pilate, for whatever reason, he's, he's finally satiated. He, he feels like he's at the end of the road on this one. He'll, his real need, I guess, was for order, for peace. And he was hearing in this crowd that, I don't know, I guess they would be good, good, quiet citizens if he would just do this one thing. So he does it. He delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Now, I think it's funny that it says he delivered him over to them, but we know that the Jews didn't carry this out. It was the Romans, and we'll see that as we carry on in the story. So it's odd language there, but I just don't think we should put too much into it. So just wanted to recognize it. Yeah. Oh, Paul, there is so much in this section. It's... Yeah. <laughs> Wait till we go to the next section. It's, this just keeps going. I just find it, you, you brought up a really good point about him being stuck, like, by this crowd. Yeah. It's so ironic that he, Pilate, had just said in a previous section to Jesus, like, don't you know that I have the power or the authority to either right. release you or crucify you? Yet, in reality... It, it like that text doesn't seem like he did like he he got so backed up into a corner by this crowd yep. that he was forced to make a decision uh that maybe he didn't even want to or felt like he needed to so i just find that really telling uh yeah and then um an, another thing just to hopefully reinforce that pilot was um mocking the crowd and not jesus when he's saying behold your king like Think about the absurdity with what with what Pilate must be thinking. Like you've got this man before him that is beaten, bloody. I mean, in some ways, on the verge of death, and he's saying, "Like really, like you think that this man is like your like a to the status of king that you are causing this much commotion on wanting to send him to death?" Like. I don't know if that makes sense with the language I'm trying to convey, but in my mind, it's like, I mean, it, it speaks into the the prophetic imagery that we see in the Hebrew scriptures about like um, the people not not recognizing 
who Messiah was because of his humble appearance. Like, right. oh, yeah. in, in, in no way is Jesus uh, displaying what true, like, uh, conquering king-like qualities in this moment because of him willingly taking on this suffering and this injustice. So yeah. I, I just brought that up to say that I think Pilate is trying to, to say, like, you guys are ridiculous that you're <laughs> yeah. likening this guy to a king whenever he's literally, you know, on the verge of dying in my arms right now. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, Good. And then the last thing, the unimaginable thing about the people saying that we have no king but Caesar, especially, I mean, of course, there were some Sadducees there, which, you know, that they're in the camp of like, there's no life after death no resurrection but they they still held True. that there was going to be a messiah and that messiah was going to be their king so in some ways they're like by them saying that we have no king but caesar they're like doubly rejecting the the authority of messiah in their life and in their society as king because that would have been what they should have been expecting that Messiah would be a man that would come and would reign as king in Jerusalem. So they're just doubling down even more so. Yeah, every time I read it, I just, it's like I'm just shocked. I can't understand it. It's just, it's it's amazing that they could say something like that. Wow. Anything else before we go on? Let's see how this one, this next section's more crazy than the one we just finished this is yeah i i i keep looking at it going oh yeah we'll be able to go through this more quickly and then nope i was wrong (laughs) but that's okay because it's good story here we go this is looking at matthew chapter 27 verse 31 mark chapter 15 verse 20 and i'm going to read from mark very short and when they had mocked him they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they let him out to crucify him. So, they're done mocking him. They're done beating him. I, you know, I, what do you say? Apparently, the joke's over. They take the royal clothes off and put Jesus's clothes back on him. And I just want to go back to it. That's probably really painful every time they do stuff like that. And... I don't know, just practicalities. They must have had some sort of ancient trick for getting the blood out because why take those clothes back if they were just ruined, you know? Mm-hmm. But apparently it was something they could fix or use or is still valuable. Now, here's the thing. The scene with Pilate, it's now over. Okay, we're done with that. Jesus is led away for crucifixion. And I just want to make some interesting points. After our last episode, I kind of looked up you know, a few more interesting things about uh, crucifixion in general. So I'm just going to throw some of these out there. First of all, I didn't even think about this. Roman citizens, official citizens were exempt from crucifixion. This was only for people that they ruled over. And they used different shapes to hang people on. Some of them looked like a capital T with the bar on the top. Some of them looked like a, a small T you know, kind of like uh, the the normal image that we have of Jesus on a cross, that cross. Sometimes they were in the shape of an X, 
Uh, and there were, you know, other, I'm sure there were other shapes. Uh, and sometimes they didn't even bother. They just went ahead and used existing trees or posts, things that happened to be around, useful. Scourging beforehand was the norm. And, and you carried your own crossbeam. Some people think you carry the whole cross. It was just the crossbeam. And also, you carried your name and the crime that you had committed or were guilty of, whatever, on a little placard. They call it a, I don't know, something like a titulus or something uh, around your neck. You carried that with you. And occasionally, I guess this would be make much more sense when you had like the lowercase t or something, they would actually nail it to the cross above you. You were stripped naked, just further uh, humiliation, I guess. Bodies, oh, Samuel. Bodies were normally just left on the cross. You, you hung up there, you died. Birds, animals, whatever came, stripped the, stripped the bones. of the, It was, they just left you. Now, this is interesting though. Jews had an exception. Just like Jews had an exception so that they could keep doing their religion in the, in, the, in the basic sense, they also had an exception. They were able to take their people down from the crosses. So that's kind of interesting. And where they crucified people was also important. It was often beside roads or uh, gates, entryways, whatever, in, in, anywhere that it was public because they wanted this to be a public spectacle. Probably. If you think about it, if people were traveling to and from Jerusalem, right, on the annual, hey, you got to go in for Passover, you got to go in for whatever, it was probably a normal part of their trips to be walking on the road and seeing people just scattered about that had been crucified. Maybe some were recent, maybe some were old, you know, whatever, just bones, but it's crazy. And this was, I don't know, well, if a Someone who's crucified, if they're just left on their own, nobody interferes in any way, the victims, on average, probably lasted anywhere from one to three days. And I'm sure a lot of this depends on the scourging that they got. One to three days. It was horrible. It was agonizing. And we may as well just call a spade a spade. It was evil. Mm. It just was. So yeah. I know it was a short verse, a lot to say, but there you go. There's a little more information about crucifixion. Wasn't also it common that Rome would reuse crosses for multiple different crucifixions? Oh, sure. Um, because I, I've watched uh, some videos. Especially the Jewish ones. Yeah, recently where they found like doing some archaeology work to look at what crucifixion looked like in the first century. And they found... Uh, remains Jewish remains of men who were crucified that still had the nail like fused into their heel bone because of Rome trying to get the person's body off of the cross to reuse it, but they could not lodge the uh, the nail out of the person's heel and had to yeah. like cut a chunk out of the like there was wood present as well. They had to cut yeah. a chunk out of the cross in order to get the person down. So just keeping that in mind too that i don't know that that just seems more like someone doesn't even have the uh, this sounds bad but have the dignity of having their own cross like they would <laughs> reuse the same right. post to, to kill multiple people so yeah yeah often the the vertical post the one that was in the ground 
that was often left in the ground and you were attached to the crossbeam first and then they used like these i don't know it was almost like forked bars or i don't know what else to call them this forked instrument to actually lift the crossbeam up onto that post that's in the ground it would it would attach up there hmm. uh, instead of like in you mentioned that movie passion of the christ they kind of dump him in there you know and he, he yeah. falls and it wasn't it wasn't normally like that but it's not to say it couldn't happen for sure but yeah they yeah there's all kinds of stuff anything else not right now all right next bit is also short uh, but you know me we'll find plenty to say about it uh, matthew chapter 27 verse 32 mark chapter 15 verse 21 luke chapter 23 verse 26 and john we're going to sneak that last little bit out of John chapter 19, verse 16, and then also <laughs> we'll do a part of 17. We're kind of tearing John up a little bit here. But anyway, I'm going to go ahead and read from Mark. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Okay. Now, if I'd read from John, John was telling us that Jesus was bearing his own cross. The other three Gospels tell us of a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, which, by the way, that's on the Mediterranean coast of North Africa. If you were looking on a map today, you would probably be looking somewhere in the area of Tripoli in Libya. At least that's, you know, kind of like the, the best guess right now from people who say they know, <laughs> whatever. The text doesn't tell us, but we might guess that he, too, is a Jewish pilgrim in for the Feast of Passover. And, and when I say that, I guess I was meaning, you know, he came from Cyrene. Uh, but it could also be that he had relocated from Cyrene into somewhere in the land of Israel. And so he still might have been a pilgrim coming in from the country, but it might have been just, you know, outside Jerusalem. We don't really know. Either way, at this moment, when he's forced to carry that cross, Samuel, there is no, no Passover for him. He is now unclean. Okay. Now, Mark, this is interesting because Mark even names two of this man's sons. You know, obvious question. Did he have more? We don't know. But this Alexander and Rufus, uh, well, side note, Paul mentions someone named Rufus in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Any possibility they're the same guy? Again, we don't know. Lots of people had the same name just like today, okay? So we don't know. The thing is, we don't know why Mark mentions them. What many scholars think or guess is that they, they were or became somewhat known or somewhat prominent in the movement. Like the, these were, uh, when Mark writes it, he's expecting that the reading audience would have been familiar with them. So they have some popularity in the movement. But we don't know anything more about them. One interesting thing, uh, back in 1941, an ossuary was uncovered, discovered, whatever you want to call it, and on it, it was labeled a couple different languages. It said a couple things. The bones of Alexander, and it said Alexander of 
Cyrene. So again, it wasn't the guy that carried the cross, but it was theoretically one of these two sons. I think that's just amazing confirmation. Can I, can I ask a clarifying question yeah. real quick? Um, is it is it inference-based to say that this guy, the Simon of Cyrene, was Jewish? Yes. Or it, Okay, so there is a possibility that this guy could have been a Gentile that was... Yes. Like, just in the, in the land as well. Yeah, totally possible. Uh, there was a fairly large Jewish contingent in and around Cyrene. So okay. uh, that, I, I think, is why people uh, go for it. And then again, it, it's, it's Passover Eve, man. Right. What yeah. are you doing in the city of Jerusalem at this time? You for know? sure. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it, 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 it's still, it's possible that he could have not been Jewish. So yeah, okay. you have to say it. So anyway, the Simon guy, he is, he is compelled, let's just say forced, to carry Jesus's cross for him. Now, this wasn't unheard of, but remember I just told you part of the thing about crucifixions, you were supposed to carry your own cross. So it reminds us that Jesus, okay, he was in bad shape after that scourging. The, the, the text doesn't say it explicitly, but I think within it, you have to assume Jesus was simply too weak to carry that cross for himself. Now, for what it's worth, I'm going to say it again, it wasn't the entire cross. And not every cross was the same, They, you know, whatever. But some estimates, this is based on archaeology, put if you were to carry the entire cross, they put it at 300 pounds or more as a maximum. Just the crossbeam alone, estimates range from, I don't know, say anywhere from like 75 to 125 pounds. So just say average, 100 pounds. You had to carry a 100 pound crossbeam. Now, I'm just going to say, maybe I'm a weakling, but that wouldn't be easy if I had not been scourged. Yeah. Okay? And, and you, you might wonder, well, how far do you have to carry it? Simon had to carry Jesus's cross a minimum of a third of a mile. And this is all we're trying to figure out, you know, where was was Pilate having this meeting? Uh, where was the actual crucifixion and burial? You know, all those things. Okay, we're, we're sort of going with the traditional locations, but it was a minimum of a third of a mile. And it could have been more if they paraded him through the streets to increase the humiliation and we we include that because that was also very common to do. So, uh, again, the distances are kind of based on the traditional location. That is a long way to carry 100 pounds. So, I mean, we could just say, apparently, the men of 2,000 years ago, well, they came from pretty hardy stock, right? <laughs> they were pretty tough. Now, Jewish writings... This is kind of interesting. It's it's just a thought. It's an idea. They compare the idea of a man carrying his own cross to Isaac having to carry the wood for his sacrifice hmm. with Abraham, which, you know, I never would have thought of that. But that's yeah. really interesting. You're carrying the very means of your own death. So I, I don't know, kind of crazy. Just one, one last little bit. I don't know how important this will be to people listening, whatever. 
being crucified outside the city walls, which Jesus was, has encouraged some parallels throughout history, uh, most commonly to like the red heifer or maybe uh, any of the other sacrifices that, you know, by by the instructions, they were supposed to be removed and burned outside the camp, outside the city. What that means is Jesus is in a sense being counted with the most sinful, the most impure, the most unclean. And again, it's just that ironic thing because it is the exact opposite of the actual truth. Truth. So anyway, there's a lot on that bit. Anything, Samuel? Uh, I actually don't have anything other than what I had asked a minute ago. So that's just really cool parallels there with the Isaac and the sacrifices. All right. On we go. Luke chapter 23, verses 27 to 31. Listen to this. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, you were probably following pretty well up to the end of that one. (laughs) We'll get there. You got to imagine, okay, again, at this point, John has told us it's around noon. That's going to get contradicted here in a minute. But by this time, whatever time it is, word has gotten out. Jesus's supporters are there to witness this tragedy. In fact, Luke says it's a great multitude. It was loud. It was mournful. So Jesus, here he is in the midst of his, you know, I don't know, I guess we'd call it a perp walk or something like that, right? (laughs) He takes the time to teach and prophesy just a little bit more. He's basically saying, look, you don't know it yet, but you shouldn't even be mourning for me. Really, you should be mourning for yourselves and even for your children. And why is he saying this? What's coming in the near future is bad. There will be no kingdom, not like, you know, in its fullness on the earth. There will be no kingdom. There's just doom. So bad, these things that are coming, it's so bad that people will wish they'd never had children because of what those children will have to go through. In fact, it is the barren who will appear to be the blessed ones, the exact opposite of normal. You will wish for death, even that like mountains or hills or whatever would fall on you, would cover you. It's going to be bad. Now, Samuel, I'd like you to read, this is very interesting, something from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, just the last part there. Thorn and thistle shall grow up 
on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Yeah. Any chance in your mind that Jesus was kind of alluding back to Hosea, chapter 10? I mean, in verse 30 of this passage in Luke, Jesus at first says, fall on us, and then he says, cover us. And yeah. <laughs> it's the same phrases, cover us, fall on us, fall on us in Hosea. Yeah. That, yeah. That, is a, that is a remez. Yeah, it's amazing. And this section in Hosea, this is what's so classic. It is speaking of Israel's punishment due to lack of repentance. This is exactly what is about to come on Israel right here in Jesus' day. And again, this reminds us the big picture part of the story. Why is all of this going down? Because the nation, his nation, his people refused to enter into real repentance, true repentance, the kind of repentance that would bring the kingdom. So I, I just think that's amazing. Now, oh boy, there are many ways to interpret this whole thing about the green wood versus the dry wood. And, you know, I'm only going to look at a couple. And these two, I think they each have their merits. I'm not saying that either one absolutely has to be right. Maybe there are other better ideas or whatever. But one way is this. Let's say that Jesus's presence here on the earth represents life. That represents the green wood. And if that is true, you know, life is here in our midst. The green wood is here in our midst. Okay, look at the result. Jesus is being crucified. I mean, this is bad. Now, when the wood is dry, and I think that, you know, to continue with this idea, we'd say, well, this is now Jesus is gone. He's died, resurrected, ascended. Jesus is gone, and God allows all of the natural consequences to befall Israel. And and some would refer to this as God's wrath. When God stops protecting us from what we naturally deserve, that would be God's wrath. Maybe you like that, maybe you don't. But anyway, that's the dry wood. So this represents, I guess, the opposite. This would be like no life. And so if that's the case, Jesus isn't among us, life isn't among us, you think this is bad, the results are going to be far worse. So that's one way to look at it. A second way to look at it would be this. Jesus himself is the green wood, meaning he is righteous. And if this is righteousness's end, that came out, that's hard to say. If this is the end that befalls righteousness, how bad will it be for the wicked or for the dry wood, those who have rejected him, rejected God, rejected all of that, right? Either way, you got to look at it and you go, look, this is what the Jews have to look forward to. And it really is bad. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. What you got there, Samuel? That uh, this ending part sounds almost like a Colva Comer where you've got, yes. if this is the status of how it is now, how much greater of a severity is it going to be in the future when the situation changes for you? You are exactly right. Um, another thing I wanted to ask is this, okay, so I'm imagining Jesus and then Simon Guy potentially going back and forth with carrying the cross beam down 
public streets in Jerusalem towards the place where he's going to be crucified. Um, and you've got crowds there. And I, I'm assuming that there are Roman officials, I guess, keeping things in order, whatever. Sure. But when, h- how should I imagine this teaching taking place? Like, would would Jesus have been able to, like, within Romans' execution of crucifixions and people having to carry their crosses, was it like nonstop, relentless? Would they have gotten whipped or beaten up if they had t- stopped, or did they let them take a a break if you know they got winded or whatever? Like, would would Jesus have been teaching this while he was? carrying the cross beam at the same time i'm just tr- trying to get a, a a visual in my mind of what that's this would have looked like in, in the midst of the great multitude mourning and lamenting probably would have been a loud chaotic commotion like yeah. help me paint the picture here yeah well uh it's difficult to put that together because we i mean we don't really know they're trying to figure these things out from you know, history and things that have been written and archaeology and stuff like that. So I can only share with you my mental image. And from the text, it appears to me that once Simon gets a hold of that cross, he carries it all the way Hmm. until they put Jesus, like literally attach him to it and string him up. That's my mental image. Secondly, yeah, I, I think... Again, because part of the process, part of the humiliation is walking them through the crowd and all that kind of thing. I I don't know if they would be trying to hurry it along, like, you know, whipping them or whatever, get them to move, like you said, or if part of the, hey, you know what, the dude has to stop and rest or he fell down because he couldn't carry it anymore or whatever. Maybe they see that as part of the humiliation and they're willing to take their time and just let them suffer their way through the trip or something. I I, I don't know. At this moment, though, in my mind, there's this great crowd that's following behind. Jesus is walking without his cross, and he is able to turn and speak. I mean, he doesn't speak long. It's just a, a couple of sentences, right? And I mean, you could easily imagine, you know, the soldiers walking alongside or whatever, and and once he says a little bit, they're going, come on, move it along now, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, so I think I think it's best that you just take the information you got and you know what? Have your own mental image because it's probably as right as anybody else's. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up about Simon carrying it the rest of the way. I wish the Gospel of John didn't make things harder with it. <laughs> his text saying bearing his own cross because yeah i mean if it's if it's customary for the criminal to carry their own cross beam and jesus was in such a bad shape that he couldn't do that like rome roman authorities aren't going to stoop down to a level that low to carry some criminal's cross for them so it right. makes sense for you know this passerby to get roped in and then if Jesus literally was as in bad a shape as we have been suggesting, then it, it that's making more sense now for it to happen the rest of the way, and Jesus being able to at least to carry himself on his own two feet, and then Speak. saying this in passing for people yeah. to hear. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Again, nothing says I'm right, but you know, that that's uh that's the way I'm seeing it. This next bit, Samuel, it's really short. We can get through this quickly. This is Luke chapter twenty three, just verse thirty two. Luke adds this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. All right, that's it. So here, Luke's just kind of filling us in on some extra detail. And I mean, it'll be more important here as we continue. But notice that uh, this is what I see here. Luke is specifying that these two were criminals. And it feels like he's doing that as opposed to Jesus, who was innocent. Now, it doesn't say things like if they were scourged or if they had to carry their own cross or whatever. Again, it's that thing like you just did, Sam. You have to create your own mental image, but we would say from what we know about crucifixions generally or commonly, they probably had been scourged. They probably were carrying their own cross, you know, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. But anyway, Luke just does that much. You got anything there? Yeah. I I mean, I know the movies all paint those other two criminals as being already at the site when Jesus gets there, but it makes me wonder, like, would these two other criminals been in the same kind of space? Convoy. Yeah, it's like they're yeah. all carrying their crosses together uh, yeah. Yeah. to the same place. I think so. There's your mental image. <laughs> Changed, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so uh, anything else? No. Nope. All right, don't want to cut you off. Uh, all right, next bit. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. Mark chapter 15, verse 22, Luke chapter 23, verse 33, and John chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, and I'm really only, uh, I only included like the last half of 17. I'm going to read from Luke. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Well, that very much solidified the picture of them all traveling together, didn't it? Hmm. So here's the thing. All four Gospels find it important to tell us that Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha. Well, actually, Luke doesn't use the word. He just uses the skull. But uh, in Aramaic, it's Golgotha. and, And that the name means, Golgotha means, place of a skull or some variation of that. Now, it's really weird. Why why are they telling us this? What do we care about it? Whatever. Well, apparently, somewhere along in tradition, they have it that Adam was actually buried in this place. And tradition also says that Adam's skull was then later found or discovered in that place. Now, all I can say to that is, eh, maybe, I mean, whatever, I don't know. How would they ever know? They pull up a skull and go, oh, it's Adams. How do you know? I don't know. But let's just, the point is that tradition calls this place the place of a skull because that was where a skull was discovered and they believed it to be Adams. That, that's, that's kind of the thing right? True or false? I don't know. Now, for a long time, it's been generally accepted that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a pretty good indicator of where Jesus was crucified and buried, kind of assuming that those two locations are pretty close together. 
Now, there are others. You got some who think it was more like on the north side of Jerusalem, and there's others who think that, no, you're both wrong. The point is that work continues to see if we can somehow know more or know with more certainty or something like that. But for us here right now, we're just going to accept the traditional place because it, I mean, it, it suits our purposes, what we're doing. Just so you have the idea, though, it's located on the kind of like the northeast side of Jerusalem. That would be northwest. Thank you very much. In this particular time, in this particular day, this was outside the city walls. It was outside the garden gate. Now, today, if you're looking on a map or if you go visit there or whatever, the old city actually is in this area. I mean, it's like there's an entire city over this spot. And the that uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, you know, it's it's right in the middle of that. So ironically, this this is interesting. This This is why we look at the traditional place and think, you know, it's probably pretty good. There was this weird thing where the, the Romans... Actually, they're the ones that we have to thank for actually marking and preserving this location. Well, how did that work? Well, at some point, Hadrian is is the the leader, and he builds temples over all of these sites that people believe, you know, and now this is like closer to the time when it happened. So they might have actually known something back then, right? Hadrian builds all these temples over those sites. And, I mean, it's kind of funny. It actually marks them for for history. So he had this temple to Venus that he built over this site, and Constantine came along later, and he actually excavated. He got rid of that temple and excavated out, and so that's why they ended up building that Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so, you know, maybe it really is where, where this stuff happened. We don't know, but maybe. It's pretty good. Another interesting point, Samuel, the word for skull, and I'm not sure, I think it's, oh yes, it's in Latin. The Latin word for skull is calvaria. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but whatever, it's close enough. Calvaria, which is where we get the English word calvary. Hmm. So when we say Jesus was hung on, uh, uh, on a cross in calvary, it's, we're saying he was hung up at that place of the skull. Kind of interesting. Also, do not confuse that word with cavalry. Many people do. It's Calvary. All right. So anyway, Luke and John give us th- this extra little detail of the three men being crucified together. Jesus is in the middle and you got one on each side. It's that iconic imagery and it happens to be factual, at least if you trust the eyewitness accounts. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Sam. You remember when James and John, well, it was kind of confusing. Either James and John asked, or it was their mom that asked if they could sit on his right and on his left. Hmm. Now think of the imagery here. Jesus is in the middle and he's got a man on his right and on his left, except they're all being crucified. That's kind of a crazy parallel, right? You can read about that back in Matthew chapter 20, verses 21 to 23. The, and we just remember again, James and John, you know what? <laughs> they are going to drink the same cup that Jesus drinks, but mm. but not yet. So anyway, yeah. that's a bunch of imagery there. I don't know how much of it is important, but that's all I had. What do you got, Samuel? Yeah, I, this is, again, a classic okie-dokie most of there being 
nuggets here at the very end of our time together. But it's I, I got when we went to Israel back in March of this year, we got the chance on the Sabbath to uh, walk to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and uh, visit this place. It's really interesting. Our guide made us aware that this location was a rock quarry where they would have been, you know, chiseling bare limestone to use for whatever purposes for the city. And then they would they would use vacant areas as tombs themselves. But in like inside of the church itself is like crazy, ornate and elaborate. And it's got all of these mosaics everywhere. But in certain locations within the church, like down on in the lower chambers, there are still portions of the exposed limestone where the you know it would have been more reminiscent of what that quarry would have looked like. And if we're mm. just taking another like a geographical or a physical uh, interpretation of why Golgotha was called the skull, um, it is said that there were two like large sunken in portions around that cliff line that would have resembled like the eyes of a skull. And then, you know, if you contend that a quarry is removing the earth, the greenery to get to the bare earth, that place would have looked like a skull itself. Uh, So I just wanted to bring that up too, that you, you can even Google it. If you type in church of the Holy Sepulchre rock quarry, you can get an image in your mind of what it would have looked like in terms of the, the at least the rock surrounding where they would yeah. have been hung. Yeah, that is cool. Uh, by all means, go Google that. Anything else? No, that was that was the only. I guess a anticlimactic. That was the only nugget I had. No, that's good. It's good. Every every little bit, every little nugget is good. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well. I- Kind of, sort of, a weird place to break, but I don't know what you can do. It's I mean, There's a lot of story here, so I think we need to let them go because we're out of time. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to resent yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon. Okie dokie.